I've got two sermons. If I were to preach one of them, it would be in my own strength this morning. And then I got a second one that came Wednesday morning, unexpected, and I'm going to attribute that to the work of the Holy Spirit, and that's the one I'm going to preach this morning, so we'll see how this thing goes. You can consider this morning somewhat of a vision casting moment for our church, I would say. Just got back from a week at the beach, officially celebrating our 10-year wedding anniversary, which means that I'm most definitely going to quote C.S. Lewis more than a few times. He and I spent a little bit of time together with our toes in the sand, as we like to do on every getaway. As a result of our time this morning, this is my hope. If you're new, my hope is uh, that, well, let me say it this way. If you're new or you're a little unsure about where we're going as a church, but you've been around for quite some time, my hope is that you would be compelled as a result of our time this morning to move toward our philosophy, our mission, our vision, our values, and so forth and so on. And if you've already embraced the heart of what we're after as a church, my hope is that you'll be encouraged and excited and emboldened to venture into this new season of ministry. With school starting back, the relaunching of community groups coming a week or so from now. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be in the first three verses of Matthew 5 this morning. If you don't have a Bible... Uh, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. you can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's a little bit difficult to track with, then please take that as the church's gift to you. As you're opening up to this morning's passage, if you've ever listened to a song or watched a, a movie that ends lacking resolution, I don't know what that is for you. For me, you've heard me say it before. If you've been around, it's uh, that Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn movie, The Breakup, I hate the way that movie ends. There's no closure. It's like a song that ends on a minor chord. You know, with enough things going wrong in our lives, our lives are really functioning on a minor chord more often than not. You just want that sweet note, that note of closure when you listen to a song or watch a movie. That's the Old Testament. There's no resolution as the Old Testament concludes because the promised Messiah, Jesus, has yet to come. As the history of the Old Testament uh, of Israel concludes, everything goes dark for about 400 years. There's no prophet that speaks on behalf of God. There's no scripture recorded for 400 years as the Old Testament comes to a close. And the next record that we have in terms of scripture is when light enters the darkness. Jesus, the promised hero that the entire Old Testament had been foreshadowing, enters a dark, hopeless world, setting aside the heavenly crown and taking on human flesh. Jesus entered the slums of human history. And, and here's what Matthew does. In the first few chapters of his gospel account, Matthew goes to great lengths to show that this Jesus born among the feeding troughs of Bethlehem, he's the hero that the entire Old Testament has been pointing to from the start. The very first few chapters of Matthew's gospel account are meant to scream to all the good Bible reading Jews, he's here. He's finally here. Matthew tells us about Jesus' baptism, his temptation in the wilderness, his calling of his ragtag band of brothers known as the disciples. And as the curtain closes on chapter 4, Jesus has been preaching and teaching in the Jewish synagogues. And along with his preaching and teaching, he's been healing people of diseases and various afflictions and driving out demons. And as a result, he's starting to draw a pretty big crowd. And it's not some homogenous crowd where everyone looks and thinks and dresses the same. He draws both Jews and Gentiles, both the religious and the irreligious lost, you might say. And according to verse 1, we're told, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. 
That in going up the mountain, Jesus is making a statement about who he is. We talked about this in the Hebrews series. He's saying to the crowd, in the same way that Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, you're meeting with God today. But it's not just an affirmation of Jesus' deity. At Mount Sinai, the Lord descended upon the mountain. He had to stoop down in order to interact with his creation. Here, Jesus ascends the mountain, revealing his humanity. He's already stooped down in taking on human flesh. He's not only fully God, he's fully man, the God-man. And while at Mount Sinai, the people were told to keep their distance, here, the people are welcome to draw near to God, clothed in flesh. That's your invitation this morning. You're invited to draw near to Jesus, to sit at his feet and abide in him and his words. It's a pretty amazing scene. God is stooped down on man's level and he's about to speak. And for many of these people, this is the first word that they've heard in light of 400 years of darkness. And notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say cursed. He doesn't say hopeless. He doesn't say unsalvageable. The first word out of Jesus' mouth is blessed. The light enters the darkness and brings hope. Jesus is not some pithy philosopher throwing out one-liner fortune cookie statements on a hillside to the masses. Jesus is God entering the messiness of humanity and declaring there's hope. And it's a hope offered to the least likely of recipients. What Jesus says next flips the entire paradigm of human thinking upside down on its head. What Jesus essentially says to a crowd filled with both religious and irreligious people is this. The way up? is down. What you think is true of God may actually be quite the opposite. You want to be a somebody? Declare yourself to be a nobody apart from Jesus. You want to keep your life? Lose it for Jesus' sake and the gospels. That's the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. The Jews expected the promised Messiah to show up with a sword in hand to free them from Roman oppression, to establish his visible material kingdom. And Jesus shows up on the scene. And because he doesn't show up on their terms, they dismiss him as the hero that all their Bibles were pointing to. Really easy for us to say, just read your Bible, guys. Right? He's right there. But if we're honest... We're not completely unlike the Jews in Jesus' day, are we? we? We want Jesus as our king, but oftentimes, as long as it's on our own terms, as long as we get to define kingship, as long as we get to define the boundaries of his dominion in our lives, like the Jews in Jesus' day, Jesus wants to give us something far greater than what we oftentimes long for. In fact, that, that very word blessed in Matthew chapter five makes that clear. That word in the original language, it actually means enviable. That Jesus isn't saying, follow me and shallow forms of happiness will be yours. No, what he's saying is to follow me is to live the enviable life. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. He says, Jesus is basically saying congratulations. Congratulations if these statements that Jesus declares in Matthew chapter 5 are characteristic of your life. We're going to look at one of those statements because that's all we have time for this morning. In verse 2. It says, and he, Jesus, opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Congratulations to the impoverished in spirit. Enviable are the impoverished in spirit. That should sound at least a little bit strange to us, right? The question begs to be answered, how is congratulations in order for those who will declare themselves to be impoverished in spirit? How is poverty of spirit enviable? And in order to answer that question, I think we first have to define poverty of spirit. That would be helpful, right? What does that even mean? Well, to be poor in spirit is simply to encounter God's holiness and character along with our sinfulness and to come face to face with our inability to bridge the gap between the two of those things. 
It means realizing that we can't broker a deal with God. It means realizing that we have no bargaining chip with God. It means realizing that left to ourselves, we're absolutely destitute and hopeless. It means realizing that we're dependent upon God for everything, including our salvation. It's the exact opposite of what our culture declares, which is esteem yourself, find the good within. At worst, you're spiritually middle class. Charles Spurgeon says, the sweet apples of self-esteem are deadly poison. Who would wish to be destroyed by them? The bitter fruits of self-knowledge are always healthy, especially if washed down with the waters of repentance and sweetened with a draft from the wells of salvation. What what Spurgeon is essentially arguing is that we don't need self-esteem. We actually need self-knowledge because only true self-knowledge will open the door for poverty of spirit. I mean, the, the reality is this. We're all spiritually poor. Everyone on planet earth, no exception. There are no truly self-reliant people on this planet. Even those who esteem themselves most rely on God to give them their next breath with which to esteem themselves. Self-reliance is essentially a mirage. We're all spiritually impoverished. The difference is that some of us are willing to acknowledge it and invite others into it, while others of us fight it tooth and nail and convince ourselves that we're strong when we're actually weak. To quote Spurgeon again, he says, and this is sobering, he says, our our imaginary goodness is more difficult to conquer than our actual sin. Man can sooner be cured of his sicknesses than be made to forego his boasts of health. Human weakness, Spurgeon says, is a small obstacle to salvation compared with human strength. There lies the work and the difficulty. Hence, It is a sign of grace to know one's need of grace. He who knows and feels that he is in darkness has some light in his soul. What I think Spurgeon would say to many in our culturally Christian context, this thing that I guess we're still calling the Bible Belt, is this. It's not your weakness that will deceive and destroy you. It's your perceived strength. It's not your sinfulness that will deceive and destroy you. It's your perceived self-righteousness. It's convincing yourself that you're less bankrupt than you actually are. Perhaps devaluing other people in order to establish that self-worth. Here's one way you know that someone's not poor in spirit. Those who lack poverty of spirit are always defensive, always explaining their sin away, always able to justify their every word, their every thought, their every action, oftentimes incredible, uh, critical of others, particularly those who can't seem to get it together fast enough. Makes sense, right? The, those who are broken and contrite point the finger a lot less than those who are not. James Montgomery Boyce, pastor, says this. He says, the human heart is corrupt, and because of it, you will always latch upon someone who is worse in some respect than you. You will find someone who is prouder than you are, and although you may still be quite proud, you will congratulate yourself on being humble. You will find someone who has strong fits of temper, and although you too have a temper, you will congratulate yourself on being more moderate in your temper than he. So it will go with all the failings that make you less perfect than Jesus Christ, and therefore the fit object of his mercy and salvation." The comparison game is really a game of self-robbery. It robs us of God's mercy, robs us of God's power, robs us of the freedom that comes when we stop trying to manage our reputation. 
for far too long, I would argue that people have bought into the lie that the mission of the church is reputation management. Just, just act like you have it together for 30, 40, 50 years, whatever it is, and then die with very few people ever knowing the real you. And let's call that the church. It's an incredibly, miserably lonely way to live, I would argue. And it's a poor display of the gospel for a watching world. That the gospel declares that you and I, in and of ourselves, we have no reputation. That Jesus is the only hope we have for a reputation. In fact, Jesus is our reputation. I could say it this way, if I could be very candid. Apart from Jesus, you're just not impressive. And neither am I. Can we acknowledge that this morning? C.S. Lewis says it this way. This is, I guess, the first of my Lewis quotes. Is that right? Here we go. He says, whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, he says, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. That's strong. What Lewis is essentially arguing is that much of the reputation management that you see in the Bible Belt South much of the appearing to be strong and looking down our noses at those who appear to be weaker than us, Lewis would argue that's actually the devil's work. And if that's true, the devil's got a really strong ground game in the Southeast. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about Matthew chapter three. He says, or chapter five, verse three. He says, if one feels anything in the presence of God save an utter poverty of spirit, it ultimately means that you have never faced him. That is the meaning of this beatitude. That spiritual poverty and humility is a sign that you've actually met with God. In Isaiah chapter six, we get this sweet picture of what Jesus is trying to communicate on this hillside to this crowd of people. Isaiah six, very famous passage, first few verses of that chapter. Isaiah says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple and above him stood seraphim, and each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is Isaiah speaking, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Notice the order of in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah encounters the holiness and glory of God. And in light of his encounter, two things happen. One, he acknowledges his spiritual poverty. And two, he confesses it. And in light of that acknowledgement and confession, he experiences something of the grace and mercy of God. That standing in the presence of God always leads to a poverty of spirit, which opens the door for God's grace to actually come in and work in our lives. Jesus, notice Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who are great at checking all the boxes. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who have the appearance of godliness through skilled reputation management. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who never let anyone see their deep need for Jesus. 
It's the exact opposite of every middle and high school PE class that's ever existed on planet Earth, right? No one picks the kid who can't throw or kick or hit. That kid always gets picked last, right? This statement from Jesus is an invitation to acknowledge that you are that kid, and so am I. You're the smelly kid in class. You're the kid who can't throw. You're the kid who has no business being invited to the lunch table, and so am I. Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 5 is an invitation to own that. And I think the question this morning is, are we willing to do so? Are we willing to own our deep need for Jesus? If not, here's what you'll do. You'll bring your counterfeit currency of self-righteousness before the Lord and other people. And you'll miss out. You'll miss out on the mercy of God. You'll miss out on the power of God. You'll miss out on the freedom that God offers. And you'll miss out on his grace altogether. And, And here's... Here's perhaps the most sobering thing of all. There are many who will miss out though they've devoted their entire lives to the church. Let me say that again. There are many who will miss out on God's grace and power and mercy and freedom though they devoted their entire lives to the church. Having spent years checking all of those boxes having spent years working hard to establish themselves as strong in the eyes of God and other people. Jesus' words are not a declaration for those who perceive themselves to have it all together, those who think they're spiritually impressive. And Jesus' words, let me say it this way too, are not a declaration to the spiritually middle class, those who think they're not as good as some people but better than others. Jesus' words are an invitation to say, my spiritual pockets are completely empty. I'm bankrupt, Jesus. Apart from you, I'm done for. I'm desperate for you. I'm hopeless without you. And Jesus says, if we will acknowledge and confess our spiritual impoverishment, then the kingdom of heaven is ours for the taking. There's a lot that we can unpack about the kingdom of heaven. I wish I had time to get deeply into that this morning, but perhaps the most significant aspect of it all is this, if you inherit the kingdom, you inherit the king. How is congratulations in order for the impoverished in spirit, how is poverty of spirit enviable? Well, those who will acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy get to sit at the banqueting table of the king forever. That you get the king. If that's not enough for you, if that doesn't stir your soul, we as a church have nothing better to say, honestly. You get the king, you get Jesus, congratulations. If we want Jesus so that we can use him to get our our hands on that which we really want, we'll never get Jesus. The gospel is not that we get God to give us that which we want more than God. That's called idolatry. The gospel is that we get God. He's the gift, the king himself, Jesus is the gift, which is absolute folly to the spiritually rich and the spiritually middle class. After all, if you perceive yourself to be spiritually rich or middle class, we're talking about a king that you don't really need, much less want. To the spiritually poor, Jesus is more than enough, is he not? The cry of the spiritually impoverished is, give me Jesus, give me the king, and I'm the richest person in all of the world. Thomas Watson, the old Puritan, once said, how poor are they that think themselves rich? How rich are they that set themselves to be poor? I call it the jewel of poverty. 
There be some paradoxes in religion which the world cannot understand. For a man to become a fool that he may be wise, to save his life by losing it, and to be made rich by being poor. Yet this poverty is to be striven for more than riches. Under these rags is hid cloth of gold, and out of this carcass cometh honey, he says. The spiritually impoverished realize that they have absolutely no business standing in the presence of the king, yet because they see their need for the grace that flows from the cross, that's exactly what they'll do. They'll stand in the presence of King Jesus forever and bask in the glory of his grace without end. It's amazing, Matthew's gospel account. Right before Jesus speaks these these words, we see him healing epileptics and paralytics, the absolute nobodies of society. And then... At the close of the Sermon on the Mount, the first thing Jesus does when he comes down that mountain, he heals a leper who comes to him in faith. Another nobody. A man who's the lowest of the low comes to Jesus with nothing more than the empty hands of faith, and Jesus heals him. This morning's passage is essentially an opportunity for you and I to say, I'm the leper in the story. I'm the epileptic. I'm the paralytic. I'm the woman caught in adultery. I'm the thief on the cross. I'm bankrupt. I'm absolutely hopeless without you, Jesus. It's not the proud, strong, self-reliant people of the world who are to be envied. It's the ragamuffins who acknowledge and confess their desperate need for Jesus Christ. Those are the enviable ones, Jesus says. John Stott says this. He says, right at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus contradicted all human judgments and all nationalistic expectations of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is given to the poor, not the rich, the feeble, not the mighty, to little children humble enough to accept it, not to soldiers who boast that they can obtain it by their own prowess. In our Lord's own day, it was not the Pharisees who entered the kingdom who thought they were rich, so rich in merit that they thanked God for their attainments. Nor was it the zealots who dreamed of establishing the kingdom by blood and sword, but it was publicans and prostitutes, the rejects of human society who knew they were so poor that they could offer nothing and achieve nothing. All they could do was to cry to God for mercy, and he heard their cry. That's my story. I don't know about you. And I would say that's our church's story. Welcome to the church. Welcome to this church bunch of ragamuffins desperately trying to point each other to Jesus, not afraid to open our lives to each other, confessing our sin and weakness to one another, fighting tooth and nail to help each other see how the good news of Jesus speaks into every situation and struggle of life. That's what we're after. Believe me when I say it is far from sanitized. It is far from easy. It's incredibly messy. It's incredibly difficult. One of my favorite C.S. Lewis stories the Voyage of the Dawn Treader it finds its way right in the center of Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, and it begins with these words. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. If that doesn't compel you to read the story, I don't know what will. It's a fantastic read. It's a great beach read because it's a story of a group of people at the high seas on an adventure It's ultimately uh, Lucy and Edmund, uh, two of the Pevensey kids who go through the wardrobe and the lion, the witch in the wardrobe and end up becoming kings and queens of Narnia. They go back for a return trip and and they take their cousin Eustace with them uh, into the land of Narnia and they're traveling the high seas, going from island to island, 
looking for these lost lords uh, whom they don't know what happened to. And they're trying to find out the story, see if they're still alive. And uh, Eustace is a very unlikable character. Uh, He's very much full of himself. It makes sense that the story would begin with those words. He really did almost deserve the name he was given. Very arrogant, very much a know-it-all, looking down his nose at everyone around him, thinking that he had everything figured out, thinking that he had it all together and that no one else knew what they were doing. Everyone else around him was clueless. And at a certain point in the story, uh, they find themselves on the Dawn Treader and they've uh, docked at an island and Eustace gets off the boat and everyone else is doing hard labor, trying to gather wood and food and supplies. And Eustace, because he's not only self-righteous but lazy, he decides to go up the mountain to try to find a place to take a nap. And he eventually finds the cave of a dragon that's recently died. And inside that cave is a, a massive pile of treasure. And Eustace because he's not only self-righteous and lazy, but he's also greedy. He decides he's gonna take some of this treasure for himself. And in the midst of his attempting to gather some loot for himself, he ends up falling asleep. He's tired. And when he wakes up, he finds that he has transformed into a dragon, like a real dragon. And he has this moment of brokenness and loneliness. He realizes that he might not be able to leave with his supposed friends as they continue their journey. In fact, where are you going to put a dragon on a tiny little ship? There's no place for the dragon. Perhaps he's going to have to stay on this island for the rest of his life and die alone. And it's this humbling moment for him, this moment where he's broken. And and he eventually uh, encounters Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure, who brings him to a well filled with healing water But Aslan says, before you get into that water, you've got to shed your scales. And as you do, when you enter in, you'll be healed. And and Eustace tries to shed a few layers of scales, and he's able to to do so, but but he can only get so far in his own efforts. And eventually he looks at Aslan as if he's hopeless, and Aslan says, I'm going to have to do that for you. And he comes, and he, he digs his claws into Uh, Eustace's scales, and and he digs deeper than Eustace ever could himself, and he peels back every layer of scaling that that exists in this dragon-like state for Eustace. And it's it's incredibly painful for Eustace. Um, It's not pleasant, but on the other side of it, he enters into the waters and he experiences this healing. And as you read the story, Eustace has not changed overnight. He still has his moments, but he's not the same as he once was. I would argue that for many of us, the most painful work of God's healing in our lives is his removing the scales of self-righteousness, the scales of self-reliance, the scales of having it all togetherness, if we can call that a word. But God is committed to that work just as much as any other work he's committed to. The work of helping us to more and more acknowledge our deep, desperate need for Jesus. The work of helping us to confess that need, not only to him, but to each other. So that we might experience more of the healing waters of God's grace ourselves. And so that we might bring those healing waters into each other's lives. As I said before, is it messy and exhausting? Of course it is. War usually is. And we're talking about soul war here. That's what the church is called to. Is it a little scary? Yes and amen. But it's worth it. Lewis says elsewhere in another of his writings, he says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. 
Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, Lewis says, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. I would argue that the church has sadly been conditioned to fear risk, to run from anything that seems messy, to run from anything that seems exhausting, to run from anything that seems difficult to manage. Jesus' declarative, blessed are the poor in spirit, actually frees us to take some risks for his glory and our joy, to share our own mess, our own deep need for Jesus with other people, and to enter into others' messiness so that we might point them to Jesus, to feel the exhaustion, to, to feel the unmanageability of life in the trenches with each other, of soul war. Blessed are the poor in spirit, it's a declaration that levels the playing field, does it not? that none of us has it all together. We all have ghouls and goblins and skeletons in our closet. We're all hopeless apart from Jesus. We're all desperate for the good news of Jesus to speak into every single situation and struggle that we have in life. And praise be to God, that's exactly what the gospel does. It's not just a means of conversion for the lost, but the gospel is actually a means of sanctification and healing for the rescued. You might ask, why that message this morning? Like, how is this a vision-casting moment for the church? Well, we're entering into a new season of ministry as we relaunch community groups. And if you've never been a part of a group, I'll just be honest with you. What you've heard this morning is the heart of what we're going after in those groups. Um, we're calling people to believe that the gospel is more than a conversion tool, but that we actually deeply need Jesus, not just once to rescue us off of the auction block of sin, not just once to put the key in the shackles of sin, not just once to, to see us adopted into the family of God, but we desperately, each and every one of us in this room this morning, need Jesus, not just daily, not just hourly, but moment by moment, like our next breath of air. And so that's what we're after as a church, is unearthing our deep need for Jesus, and then pointing each other to how the good news of Jesus Christ speaks into every situation in our lives, every struggle, every aspect of every rhythm of our lives. We want to understand better how the gospel comes to bear in our lives so that we might experience greater joy, greater grace, greater mercy, greater freedom, and greater hope. And so if that sounds appealing to you, I think it would be fantastic, a good move for you to move toward a community group as we continue our signups this week. Uh, we'll have a, a moment in just a second for you to fill out a card. I believe there should be one in front of the, uh, on the back of the seat in front of you. Um, we've got uh, tables, communion tables that you can just drop those cards onto as you come and receive the elements. If you're a Christian, communion is for you. We take the broken body of Jesus, uh, excuse me, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. Um, we do want to give you a little bit of space to fill out a card before you come. Um, I'm not sure this was mentioned last week, and so I will say this. If you're a part of a group and you're going, yeah, no brainer, we're gonna jump in again, but you haven't filled out a card, please do that. That just lets us know where you are, um, and, and it 
creates less follow-up for us. It's also, I would say for you, just consider that an act of worship along with the receiving of communion, along with sitting under God's word this morning, uh, preached along with singing of, of God's goodness, glory, and grace. Just consider the bringing of that card, another act of, of worship. We'll give you space to do that. Another thing having to do with community groups, um, we're not in a dire straits place where we need host homes, but we are trying to create even a waiting list of people who are willing to host a group so that as we roll out new groups, we can then uh, look at those rosters and determine where the best location is and then look at a list that we have uh, of excess uh, people willing to host groups and go, this group would be great in this home and just be able to plug those people in seamlessly. So if that's something that you have the margin, the willingness, the ability to do, host a, a group week in and week out, um, please Make note of that on the card as you drop it off. If you already dropped off a card last week and you're going, I could host a group, but we've already signed up, just shoot me an email or Jason or James, anybody on staff, and let us know that's something you would be interested in, and we'd love to add you to that list. I hope you're encouraged this morning. I hope that you're drawn in to what we're going after. Again, I'll say it again. I've said it several times at this point. It's risky. It's tiresome but it's unbelievably worth it. 